Before I begin, let us pray and ask the Lord's blessing. Heavenly Father, you are good. You are indeed our sustainer and strength. You are our king. And like a good father and a good king, you provide us with all that we need, all that we are required to do our task, to fulfill the callings that you have given to us. So, Lord, we ask that you will bless us with faith and love and hope today and all the days of our lives. Amen. Amen. So the text, the sermon text this morning is Ephesians 6, verse 10 through 17, which is regarding the armor of God. Uh, now, the process of preparing sermons is sometimes very interesting. Uh, it involves sometimes stacks and stacks of books to come up with what amounts to about three or four pages. Um, this time around, I was very fortunate to be looking through one of the commentaries, and I stumbled upon a footnote from a book from the 17th century. And the reason I'm saying this is that this is one of those sort of little gold nuggets in the Christian commentary library. That's by uh, a man named William Gurnell. It was from uh, the 17th century. It's called The Christian in Complete Armor. It's approximately 2,400 pages on seven verses. So if you want to delve deeply into the armor of God, more than what I'm going to cover today, I would recommend it. It's only $5 on uh, iTunes or whatever. And it is quite impressive and quite exhaustive, and it is very, very quotable. So that is uh, largely my resource for today. Now, Paul's letter to the Ephesians is, by and large, an exhortation to new Gentile Christians, reminding them of what is involved in following Christ. So in this way, the letter resembles a type of catechism for new Christians. Paul explains that since Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, currently ruling and reigning, he, that is Christ, has now charged his followers with a certain set of commands or commissions. And then Paul concludes his letter with a metaphor of the armor that God gives us. So this will be our endeavor today to examine our expectations, our duties as followers of Christ, and then why Paul chose this metaphor of armor of God as his conclusion to the letter. The use of military language is spread throughout Scripture, and often the imperatives that we receive are communicated to us in the language of commands, commissions, or duties, which are all military-type terms. And the greatest imperative that we receive as disciples of Christ is, of course, the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. We are charged with making disciples of Christ, who has all authority. But the language used regarding the authority of Christ is military language. And even the section title that was given to this section, is the Great Commission. A commission 
is a set of commands or duties for a soldier to follow and execute. So Paul is certainly using familiar language when he equates the Christian to what we will see as a Roman soldier in the service of the army of Christ. And it is by describing this type of armor and the weaponry that Christ has supplied us with that Paul explains what our duties are as Christ's followers. And he also offers a warning of the type of battle that every Christian is about to face. He tells us, the church, who their enemies are and what our enemies' tactics will be in this battle. And though this metaphor is at the end of Ephesians, it is actually the beginning or the introduction of Paul's letter, where he encourages the Christians that we have a Lord who has supplied us with every need, that we, uh, with everything that we need, rather, to be successful in carrying out our tasks. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, Paul begins with this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. They are, the church, are in fact chosen in Christ. God the Father has blessed them with every spiritual blessing. This act of God blessing the body of Christ is central to Paul's whole letter. And we have indeed been equipped and blessed with everything we need to faithfully follow Christ. So keep this in mind as we move through chapter 6. Chapter 6 begins by Paul addressing individual segments of the church. Husbands, wives, slaves. And then he moves on to the full congregation. He says, all of you. And that is where we begin today, at verse 10. So Ephesians 6, beginning at verse 10. He says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. We are to put on the complete armor of God. Now, you may have a translation that uses the word panoply. That comes from the Greek word panoplion. And panoplion means a full set, or a set that is lacking in nothing. Paul is clearly using this word to reiterate his point from the introduction. Christ is not the type of Lord who withholds what his children need. This is followed by the command to be strong. The command to put this armor on is coupled with the command to be strong or to strengthen ourselves in the Lord. Now, this same exhortation is given several times in the Old Testament. It is given to David in 1 Samuel 30, verse 6. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him. Because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. It is also given to the Hebrew exiles from Israel and Judah in Joshua chapter 1, verse 7. Excuse me, Zechariah chapter 10. 
Zechariah chapter 10, verse 12. I will make them strong in the Lord, and they shall walk in his name, declares the Lord. And finally, from Joshua 1, verse 7, at the commissioning of Joshua to lead Israel. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do all according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. Now, who is doing the strengthening in all of these instances? I may hear you ask that question to yourselves. Who is doing the strengthening? Are we welling this up within ourselves? Is this something that comes from within us? No. We understand that as good Reformed folk. This exhortation is a passive command. A passive command is the type that is done to the person. It is not one that is done to themselves. We do not well this up within our own willpower or volition. So to be strengthened in the Lord is then the same as being blessed with every spiritual blessing. Christians are not empowering themselves. Rather, they are being empowered by the Holy Spirit. And Paul couples this with his mighty power. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Or as some translations say, his mighty power. Now, we can understand what Paul means by this mighty power if we go back to chapter 1, verses 19 through 20, and he defines it there. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might? That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand, at his right hand, in heavenly places. Therefore, the strength that we receive or the strength that we are empowered with, is the same power that raised Christ from the grave. We strengthen ourselves in the Lord through his resurrection and through his glorification. Paul is leaving no mystery that our Lord, who is indeed the Christ, has risen to the highest authority. He has taken the highest rank, and he is the one who is arming us. Paul then immediately follows this exhortation, to be strengthened and put on the armor of God by identifying our enemies. Our enemy is the devil and his schemes or his wiles, which is the older and more precise term. Furthermore, Paul elaborates that these schemes or wiles of the devil consist not of flesh and blood, but of rulers, authorities, cosmic powers in the present age, and spiritual forces in the heavenly places. Those things require a little bit of clarification. The first designation that these enemies are not of flesh and blood could be understood to mean they are not merely of flesh and blood, or rather that they are not primarily of flesh and blood. This means that our enemy is primarily spiritual in nature. However, it can have physical ramifications or physical manifestations. Secondly, these different types of powers or forces that Paul mentions here are not meant to denote any lesson in the power structure or rank between them. Now, we can learn from other places in Scripture that there are indeed ranks within the forces of darkness. The devil, of course, is the chief among them. He is their leader. However, Paul's point is not to give us the power structure, which rank will do what and who is capable of doing what. Rather, his emphasis is that we may at some point face the full force of these attacks 
Paul, therefore, is more concerned with warning that these attacks are imminent than he is with identifying who exactly are carrying out these attacks. Paul is expressing the notion that while the identity of the enemies may forever remain a mystery for us on this side of eternity, we are to be sure that those enemies have one goal in mind. Their goal is to destroy the union we have with Christ our Lord and the union we have with one another as the body of Christ. I'll say that again. Their goal is to destroy the union we have with Christ and the union we have with one another. Our enemies are those forces in the world that are hostile to Christ and his church. Because of this, it becomes clear that our own determination, our own willpower, and our own strength are not sufficient for combat in this type of warfare. The spiritual armor, therefore, is required for us to be effective to fight and resist the wiles of the devil. The panoply is the full suit of armor, and it is described, as I mentioned, in the likeness of a Roman soldier's armor, particularly a Roman centurion. This is actually quite obvious. It was a Roman world at that time. So nearly everyone in the first century would have been very familiar with the appearance of a Roman soldier and what they looked like in full armor. This is very much like us today and police officers. We know what they look like. We know what they are transported in. We have all seen them. We have all had interactions with them, and some of us perhaps more than others. It is worth noting that a Roman centurion was the type of man that must be relied on, even in the fiercest battle. When the enemy would draw near, they would stand their ground. The Roman army was the best and most disciplined in the whole world. They were feared and respected even by their adversaries. So these same qualities are required and expected in us as soldiers in the army of Christ. So now let us turn to the substance of the individual pieces of armor, and we will see that they are, in fact, metaphors for spiritual gifts and virtues. So we begin, or we pick up, rather, at verse 14. Paul says, Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now, as I mentioned before, Paul was not coming up with new or novel metaphors when he was talking about the strength, of God, the strength that God gives his children. The armor of God does indeed have many antecedents in the Old Testament, and we heard one of them this morning from our reading. Isaiah 59, verse 16 and 17. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. And his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and he wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. We notice that the Lord is the one who is putting this armor on the wearer. The Lord is the one who is providing the righteousness and salvation. 
Now, this imagery is crucial to understanding the function of Paul's metaphor. The putting on of the armor of God is directly related to what Paul describes as putting on the new self, which he mentions just before chapter 6. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24, he says, And put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So by putting on the new self, we are in fact putting on Christ as our new identity. We are being equipped and fitted with his righteousness and his holiness. The salvation we have is given from him alone. And all of this then gives us strength and power beyond measure. This is perhaps precisely what Paul had in mind when he wrote the very same thing to Roman, to the Romans in Romans 13. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So the whole armor is seen as an image of putting on Christ as our propitiation, as our substitute, and as our rescuer. So let's examine the first piece of armor that we receive, which is the belt or girdle of truth. Having fastened on the belt of truth. Now the belt, or the waist, or the loins, are the center of balance and movement in the body. So what is the center of balance in the body referring to in a metaphorical sense? Well, we can actually find the best clarifications for Paul's meaning from that of how Peter uses this same language in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Peter says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter says, It is our mind that must be prepared and ready for action. Now, the word prepare that Peter uses is the same root word for belt that Paul uses. For a Hebrew to prepare for battle, he would gird up his garments around his waist or into his belt so that he could engage in battle without being hindered by his clothing. So accordingly, we are to prepare our minds for battle by binding them up with the truth. We bind our minds up with the truth, not only the truth of knowledge, but more importantly, the truth of sincerity and conviction and the truth of sound doctrine. This is because the loins are to the body as the keel is to the ship. The whole ship is knit to it and sustained by it. The body is knit to the loins. If the loins fail, the whole body fails. If our mind fails, the whole body fails. Therefore, to put on the belt of truth, we are to have our minds filled with the truth in sincerity and the truth in God's word. We are to know the truth and genuinely believe it and therefore genuinely live according to it. The second piece of armor is the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness consists of a metal that is formed from the righteousness of Christ. Now, Christ not only imputes his righteousness for us, that is, we who are united with Christ receive blessings that his obedience merited, that his obedience earned for us, but Christ also imparts his righteousness to us so that we are capable of living lives that are no longer dominated by sin. We are made pure 
and then given the ability through the Holy Spirit to live pure and holy lives. Therefore, the breastplate of righteousness not only signifies who has made us righteous, it also gives us real protection. It gives us real protection and aid in living righteously before the Lord. But why is Christ's holiness pictured as the breastplate alone and not the whole suit of armor? Well, we find the answer in what the breastplate protects. It covers the chest. It protects the vital organs, mainly the heart. And we know in Scripture that the heart is regarded as the center of the man. The heart was seen as the house for the man's soul and the man's conscience. A man may survive several injuries to his arms and legs, but a wound to the chest or directly in the heart is almost always fatal. So the chest needs protection. Therefore, our souls need protection as well. And they are protected by Christ's holiness. That is to say, the soul is the thing that is in danger of being judged and condemned for its unrighteous state. It has no capability of cleansing itself. Our soul's only hope for reconciliation is the propitiation given to us by Christ. Additionally, we who have had our souls saved and protected by Christ are then filled with a great degree of courage and resolve so that we can face even death and danger knowing that our soul is secure in him. On the contrary, however, the soul that is unprotected is utterly naked before God. It is left bare and exposed to danger and guilt. And we know that a guilty soul or a guilty conscience turns even the most resolute courage into fear, and it turns resolve into cowardice. So we are equipped with all that we need to have courage and to have resolve, even in the midst of battle. Paul then moves to the shoes of the gospel. As shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now in Paul's letter to the Colossians, he defines what exactly he means by the gospel of peace. Colossians chapter 1, verse 19 through 20. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The atonement of Christ brought about peace between God and man. It is this peace that is the good news, the gospel that we are to proclaim to the world, that there is reconciliation between God and man. We who were once enemies of the Lord, whose minds, hearts, and souls were utterly opposed to him and his ways, we are now presented as blameless and pure before God through the blood of Christ. So Paul's exhortation is to bind our feet with this good news of the gospel. He gives this task to the feet because they carry the rest of the body. Our feet are pictured as being our will or our volition. The will, therefore, carries the soul. So we are to bind our will with the gospel so that we are always prepared in any and all encounters that we may face. If our will is well-equipped and full of confidence, it is like having a sturdy pair of boots on a long hike. Now, I imagine that some of us have 
gone on excursions like that, and we've had the improper footwear. It's not very easy. But when you go into the woods for a hike or camping and you have sturdy boots, you feel very confident. For you know you can tread through the mud and the rocks and through the water and over limbs, and your feet will be secure. Your footing will be secure. Even more so, the soldier who had his shoes securely on his feet was that much more capable and ready for battle. Therefore, we are equipped to outmaneuver our opponent and defend our faith when we bind our feet with the gospel. And this may well have been precisely what Peter had in mind when he gives us the command to defend the faith in 1 Peter 3.15. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. We must therefore bind our wills with the readiness to defend the gospel of Christ against any and all foes. Then we have the shield of faith. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Now the shield that Paul has in mind here is the Roman shield, and it actually was a very large rectangular shield with a concave surface. And when the soldier would hold it, it would nearly cover from his shins up to his shoulders. So this is not a small round shield that we may be accustomed to. It's not Captain America's shield. It's a shield, it's a large rectangular shield. So it would have been possible to cover nearly the whole part of the soldier with it, the whole body. Or the soldier could have certainly hid behind it for extra protection. So how is faith regarded as this type of shield, which protects the Christian even from from flaming arrows shot by the enemy? First, this faith is not merely the faith of believing in facts or historical events. Rather, it is justifying faith, the type of faith that can be born only from the Holy Spirit and is the gift of God's grace. This faith recognizes and holds fast to the atonement of Christ And it is Christ who is the object of this faith. The faith is a shield to protect every part of the body. It is usually the case that we may be tempted in certain specific areas of life, but not in all of them all at once. We may go through seasons or periods where our mind is doubting the truth and goodness of God's word. Or we may become afraid that we cannot be forgiven. We say to ourselves that we have sinned too much and that God cannot forgive us. These are all attacks from sin and the devil that are aimed at various parts of our being. The shield of faith, therefore, faith in Christ's atoning work, is capable of protecting us from all of these attacks. This is why Paul says, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. He doesn't say, in some circumstances. He says, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, for it is intended to be our first line of defense against whatever attack comes our way. It is the only piece of armor that is ascribed with a specific effect for the soldier who wields it. Paul intends to emphasize that the faith we have is intended to even protect the other pieces of armor that we receive. And since Christ is the object of our faith, it is actually he that takes the blows. It is he that takes the attacks. 
And these have no effect on him, of course. So in this way, we ought to shield ourselves in Christ, to put on Christ. Now we arrive at the final piece of armor that the Christian wears. It's not the final in the list that Paul gives, but it is the final piece that the Christian wears on his body. And that is the helmet of salvation. Paul mentions the helmet of salvation in his first letter to the Thessalonians. And there he explains a little more on what he means by salvation. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 8-9. through 9. But since we belong to day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So it is the hope of our salvation, which is the final piece of armor, when which combined together make the soldier ready for battle and fully dressed. We do not hope or trust in our own strength or our own abilities. We rely purely on the salvation we have through Christ, and our hope is made secure just as we have already read from Ephesians chapter 1, that God the Father chose us in him before the foundation of the world. The last important note is that the helmet being the final piece of armor links together all the other pieces. So that with the inclusion of the helmet, the armor is now complete. So hope, therefore, is the final piece which binds all of our other virtues together. And once the full armor of God is assembled and put on, it does not come off. This is an important point. For our warfare is one that does not come and go. We are to keep this armor on until we finish our duties. The helmet is therefore the seal. It is the sign of our status as soldiers of Christ. The helmet primarily in the first century was used for identification purposes. Yes, it provided physical protection, but the Roman helmets had um, crests on them, and those were for identifying particular soldiers. So we are to keep this armor on until we finish our duties. And like I said, the helmet, therefore, is the seal of the Christian's armor. Now, as I mentioned earlier in my introduction, uh, the author William Grinnell, in his book, The Christian in Complete Armor, has this to say regarding the helmet of salvation. Quote, We are directed to take the helmet of salvation, not for some particular occasion, and then hang it by till another extraordinary strait calls us to take it down and use it again. But we must take it so as to never lay it aside until God shall take off this helmet and he replaces it with a crown. Therefore, we ought not to remove our helmet. So you could almost imagine Paul saying, this is the way. Some of you may have gotten that reference. <laughs> Hold on to that reference. It'll be important later. And finally, we receive our piece of weaponry, the sword of the spirit. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. This sword is the word of God, and it fulfills this function in several ways. First, the sword can be used in defense. That is to say, it can be used in tandem with the shield. 
And if we were equipped only with a shield in hand, we would have nothing to aid us in the retention of the rest of our armor or our shield. Therefore, the sword keeps us from being stripped of the gifts that God has blessed us with. While it defends the soldier, it is also intended to inflict the enemy. The word of God protects our minds and hearts and souls from the threats from sin and wickedness. This sword is not only a keeping and sustaining instrument, but it is a killing instrument. It kills in that through the word of God, we are instructed to mortify our flesh and its desires. God's word instructs us to know what is sin and to know what is righteous. And therefore, we know what to slay and what to protect. God has indeed given us the most powerful weapon so as to slay the dragons of sin in our own hearts. For if we do not slay this sin in our flesh and leave it to survive another day, it may return and attack us once again. So we ought not to be the type of soldier that has pity on our sin and wickedness so as to allow it to survive to fight another day. Peter warns of just such mercy toward sin in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 20. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. So our battle is chiefly defensive, apart from putting our sin to death. We are called to fight to preserve what God has blessed us with. But we are not equipped to strip our enemy of his armor and his weapons and then to take them as our own. For we are commanded not to repay our enemy with the same attacks that he wages on us. Again, from 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. And we must also remember that Christ is the Word made flesh. He is the Word incarnate, whose commands are beyond contestation. Christ wields the sword of the Spirit, and his Word is authority. For at his Word all creation was born, and before his feet all mankind will bow and confess. Every ruler that has ever existed has dreamt of having his word be power. Every king and every tyrant has desired to be able to speak and have his words then become reality. Christ is the only Lord who possesses this power. And even more remarkably so, he has revealed this word to us. These spiritual blessings and virtues combined together are the full armor of God. And it is the suit of armor that once we put on, once we put on Christ, we ought not to take it off. Now, some of you caught that, uh, the little reference I made to a popular Star Wars show called The Mandalorian. Now, it actually, that show actually contains some very clever imagery that uh, can help us understand this. In the show The Mandalorian, if you're not familiar, we follow a character named Mando, or who is a Mandalorian, and they are a race of warriors. And we learn that these warriors are sworn to a code that they are not allowed to remove their helmet, 
And once they are confirmed as Mandalorians, they are forbidden to show their face to any living being. Thus, their helmet, or their armor, becomes their new identity. They only go by the title of Mandalorian. They have no name. uh, The name that they are born with is forbidden to be used. So their armor becomes their identity, and it cannot easily be removed. So it is quite easy to see that this modern-day illustration is very close to the spiritual armor that we receive. We are not afforded the freedom to put on our armor and take it off at leisure. We are not afforded the opportunity to take on these virtues and these spiritual gifts and take them off when we feel like it. For our battle is the type that does not end until we die or until Christ returns. The Christian life is not one which affords us days off or leaves of absence from service. For the enemy gains ground and attacks when we think we can let our guard down. When we think there is no threat, that is when we are the most vulnerable. But our commander has provided us with all that we need to be safe and to be victorious. These gifts and virtues are primarily defensive and they protect us from sin. However, they do not protect us from suffering, trials, or persecution. Rather, they are intended to strengthen us in those sufferings, trials, and persecutions. This armor is not given to men to wear by the fireside at home, but it is given to them to wear in the field of battle. For the worth of our armor is only proved once it is tested. And only when the metal is tested is the armorer praised for his craft. Therefore, he that desires to live all his days in the land of peace and plenty, where the whole year is summertime, he will not make a very good Christian. We are commanded, therefore, to resolve for hardship. And if we refuse to do so, then we ought to lay down our arms and flee. But we have not been called to a spirit of fear and cowardice. For we follow our Lord, who has, in fact, already defeated the enemy. We must remember that Christ is ruling and reigning now over all creation. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 through 15. And you who were dead in the trespasses and the uncircumcision of the flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Indeed, Christ is victorious over all his enemies, and so too is the Christian that is well equipped with the full armor of God. And to those who are indeed filled with the Holy Spirit, these powers of darkness, these forces of evil in our world, pose no threat to us whatsoever. So saints, it is now more important than ever before for us in our day and our circumstances to stand firm in Christ. We must therefore join together, link our shields with one another's, and hold the battle line of faith. We must fight together, and we must fight for one another against any forces that seek to destroy our fellowship with Christ 
and our fellowship with one another. So we must remember that we are in the service of the Most High and that we cannot be touched by a disarmed enemy. As long as we stay resolute and well-equipped for battle, our God has indeed equipped us for all that we will face, and he has blessed us with the assurance of victory for as long as we bear his banner and stand our ground for the sake of Christ our King. Amen. 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 Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us a righteous king. You gave us your son as our king. The only perfect and righteous ruler that we could ever hope for. We ask that you will bless us with faith and strength to follow Christ in a world that is broken and is full of perils. Give us strength. Help us to tend to our armor, to keep these virtues and these gifts that you have given to us. May we shine them and sharpen them and hewn them and use them and be accustomed to them so that we can glorify you in all that we do. And we ask this all in the name of Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.